that tells me it's possible as a believer to be familiar with scriptures as they were and somehow, some way, rationalize wrong behavior and somehow kind of say, well, this is the way God's will is. You know, it's possible to do that. You can logically think, uh, so to speak, one plus one equals two and yet come to a wrong conclusion. And so that's what was happening with the people. They had kind of figured out the math and it wasn't quite 70 years. It might have been 68 years or 67 years or somewhere along those lines. And they knew the scriptures. It's possible as God's people to know the word of God and yet not be fully obedient to the word of God, right? That's possible to do that. And that's what's happened here. And yet they weren't acting really like God's people because God's message to them was this people says the time has not come that the Lord's house, the temple should be built. And they used that excuse in their minds to justify not attending to the work when in fact and in reality they were apathetic. They were apathetic and there's always a cause and effect in the things of God. They're apathetic because they were taken up with other pursuits, worldly pursuits. And so that's the charge. That's the allegation that comes. Notice what it says here in verse 3. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And this is the message right here set off by that phrase, the word of the Lord, the first one of these. Verse 4, is it time then, if you're talking about time, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled or sealed houses and this temple to lie in ruins? That's the charge that God gives to the nation of Israel. He asks that question just like he asked those questions to Malachi sometime later. It is indeed possible for God's people to justify these things in their own thinking and come to that conclusion, and yet all the time be living, living in a sense, a double life. Uh, sounding spiritual, knowledgeable of the word to an extent, but taken up with their own pursuits. And this may not apply to you, or it may apply to you. It may apply to you personally, it may apply to you corporately. Maybe it won't. Maybe it doesn't. But it's something that we need to watch out for if it doesn't apply right now. Something down the road, perhaps, getting so involved in your own things. I've even looked at this in my own meeting. You know, there are times that I've seen bulletin boards set up and they're real nice and they look great. And there they sit year after year after year. And after a period of time, you know, the paper curls up and it looks a little faded and all that. And no one attends to it. But yet, you go to their homes and some of the homes are meticulously decorated and, you know, you know looking nice when the things in the house of God haven't been that way. And so it's a matter of priorities, isn't it? And so this is what God is charging them with. They're, they have misplaced priorities. And so he is charging them. This is the allegation. He says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's the first of five times that the word consider is going to be brought up in this portion, these two chapters. He says, you've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to be put into a bag with holes. In essence, God was saying to the nation of Israel, spinning your wheels. And you don't realize it, but you are working hard. They were diligent. It wasn't like they were apathetic, like they were couch potatoes. We use that term in our uh, vocabulary these days. You know, just lazy, can't get up off the seat. It wasn't that all. They were diligent, right? It says right here, it says, you've sown much. So they're hard workers. The problem is God wanted to get their attention. And certainly in that dispensation, the way to get their attention was to uh, hit them in the pocketbook. And so this is exactly what happened here with the nation of Israel. So he says to them, you've sown much, you bring in little, you eat, but you don't have enough. You're basically spinning your wheels, we would say in our 
uh, language these days. And so he calls them to action. In verses 7 through uh, 11, there's the action that he charges them with. First the allegation, then the action. He says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That is a message in itself. Just consider your ways. Now I mentioned this morning in the book of Proverbs that one of the purposes for Proverbs was that you would understand the ways of righteousness. In Psalm 103, it tells us that God made known his ways unto Moses, but his acts unto the children of Israel. That's an interesting phrase. At first brush, we look at that verse and we say, well, that's a positive thing. God has made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. We say, ooh, that sounds great. That's a wonderful praise the Lord. That's not a praise the Lord passage. That's a rebuke. The praise is that he made known his ways to Moses because Moses was the meekest man in all the earth and he walked closely with the Lord. So God showed him the cause and effect, the ways. But to the children of Israel, all they saw was his his outward manifestations of power and his works. They only understood the outward actions, his acts under the children of Israel. That's in Psalm 103. And so those who walk close with the Lord understand the way God works. And uh, they didn't realize that the nation of Israel, that they were working hard, sowing much, but bringing in little. They were working very hard. He says, you drink, but you're not filled. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He earns wages, earns wages to be put in a bag with holes. I once heard of a preacher who preached his whole message just in reverse, saying he earns wages put into holes with bags. Well, that's what you want. Put your money into bags with, hole, with holes with bags on them because they can catch it. But not with uh, this. Because there are holes through the bags and the money was going out. Don't you ever feel that way when money is going right down the drain, right? So the call to action is found in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. God wants the glory. He says to them, go up to the mountain. They probably used the materials that were meant for the temple to put paneling on their houses, the ceiling. You know, that's the that's what the charge is, right? You... You uh, have paneled houses in verse 4. Nothing wrong with paneled houses. Nothing wrong with beautiful ceilings as long as God's work comes first. And that's what he's reminding them. And so he says, go up to the mountains, bring the wood, build the temple that I might take pleasure in it. He says in verse 9, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Now, you don't have a problem with snow here in this area. Has it ever snowed in Fort Lauderdale? I don't think so. But, you know, it never fails. I've made this. I'm going to really, I think I'm going to start taking tallies of this. Our Wednesday, our midweek meeting is Wednesday night like yours. And, you know, it seems that every single Wednesday night it's bad weather. If it's in the summer, it's a storm. If it's in a winter, it's sleet and, you know, freezing rain or snow. And it never seems to fail that whenever something like this happens, even when we have a conference, on a weekend conference, there's a threat of snow. Should we cancel? And, uh, you know, a little one snowflake comes down. It's like, okay, we can't go out, right? So the event is canceled, and there does come snow. Next thing you know, everybody's out riding down the street to get on the sleds to go sledding. Too much too dangerous to go out in the street for the meeting, so we've got to close the meeting, but not dangerous enough to go out and have a fun time. 
You see, and that's the way we sometimes our convoluted thinking. You don't want to do that. It's dangerous. We're going to put people in, in danger's way or harm's way. And yet we'll, we'll go quickly, run to our fun time. And so, again, it may not apply to everybody here in this meeting at all, but uh, that is the thing that we have to be concerned about, that we don't put priorities, our own priorities, above the Lord's. We run to our own house. Therefore, God says in verse 10, the heavens above withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. I call for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the oil and whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. And that's the action that God was going to take as well. Now, God is a God of love. He's a God of grace. And we praise the Lord for that. And so even with this rebuke comes an affirmation. And that's what you see in the last verses of this chapter. God's wonderful grace and mercy. You know, James chapter 2 tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you glad for that? That God is a merciful, gracious God. And that's what he's doing here. And so even though it's a message of rebuke, uh, it finishes with this affirmation. God saying, in effect, I am for you. And so he brings this out, Haggai, from the word of the Lord. But notice in verse 12 what happens. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, Joshua, the son of Jehazek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, <clears throat> now expands a little further to the remnant of the people. Those who are serious about the things of God. That's what the sense is with the remnant of the people. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophets, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Anybody who has had platform responsibility would rejoice to have the congregation respond so quickly to a message like Haggai had right here. And so the message came to uh, the people on the Lord's day. Look at verse 13. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people. And this is the outcome of this whole message. So it's not a separate message. It's the conclusion of this whole uh, series of verses. He says, I am with you. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Jehozadak and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. If you did the math, that's 23 days after this message came. All it took was just over three weeks for them to start the building of this foundation or the resumption of the building of the temple foundation. Why three weeks? Maybe 10 years of rubble. That was there. Don't forget, it's a 10-year period of time. They started for five years, and they stopped the work because of the decree. Then there was a 10-year period of time that it just lied in waste and ruin. Then they resumed it again as God stirred up Haggai. So it's probably 10 years of rubble and other cleaning up that had to take place over that 10-year period. Plus, they needed to get the resources, go up to the mountain and get the wood. So they had to do that. So perhaps that process was a three-week period of time. But the point of the matter is they obeyed instantly and got to work. And I don't know what the Lord has called you to in terms of a project in the local assembly here or in your own personal ministry, wherever it may. But if God has given you work to do, follow through on obeying the work of the Lord, the word of the Lord for the work he's called you to. And obey and get the resources that are necessary and get to the work. Maybe uh, God has called you to a particular thing and you're dawdling. You don't know what to do. Maybe you're flirting with the world. Maybe you're entertaining other things that are not, uh, should, not be enter- should not entertain in your life. And that's causing, that's a drag on you. Maybe it's, a, it's pulling back your, and, and dampening your spiritual fervor. 
whatever it is, deal with it and bring it before the Lord. And uh, make sure that uh, you say, Lord, I want to be used of you in a, in a wonderful way, in a powerful way for the blessing of your people and for his church. And God will give you that desire. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, it says in the book of James chapter 4. And so that's a wonderful spiritual secret, we might say. It's not a secret. It's declared in the word of God. But that's the, tr- that's the truth behind it is when you move in that direction, George Mueller said, when you move in that direction, God will give you the grace and the strength to continue moving. But if you pull away, you don't have that grace and strength. You continue slipping in the other direction. So there's no neutral ground, really. You're really going one way or the other. And so here's the encouragement of the affirmation that God has given to his people. And that's the first message. Chapter one is message number one. Chapter two has three brief messages in it. We'll take a look at that as well in the remaining time. Chapter two is a message of encouragement. So first one was a rebuke, a reprimand. The second one is encouragement. And God's going to show his presence and remind them of his promises and tell them about his program and the peace that he has for each believer as they move ahead. So this comes uh, just one month later, this message. In the seventh month, not the sixth now, but then the seventh, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. That's the second time that phrase is used. And it's directed to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant of the people. And he says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, I will shake all nations. And they shall come to the desire of all nations and will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. And so that's the second message. Second message of encouragement. That verse 9, don't you love that verse? I love it. The glory of this latter house should be greater than the former. And in this place I'll give peace. For many years, I worked at America's Keswick, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center, and men fighting addiction, chemical addiction through drugs or alcohol, whatever it might be. For six years, I worked there. And uh, it is a tranquil place, Keswick. If you're up in the Ocean County area of New Jersey and Whiting, you come and visit that place and you'll see it. But all along, this 660 acres, a sanctuary in the wilderness, if you will are walking trails. And along those walking trails where a lot of these guys have come whose lives have been shattered because of addiction and other problems are little verses on the trees, little placards, little wooden placards, little verses of encouragement. I remember the first walking on those trails and seeing this verse right here, Haggai 2.9. I'll make the glory of the latter house to be greater than the former. And in this place I'll give peace. You know, the application in a practical, personal way. Of course, the, the initial interpretation of this verse is that uh, God is saying to the nation of Israel, you keep at the work and finish this temple because I have great plans for this place in Jerusalem. 
There's going to be something that occurs here in this temple that is far-reaching for future generations. The work of the Lord is that way. We work now. Yes, we receive some benefit, but the key is to keep in mind that if the Lord does not come, there are future implications for this. That's a wonderful truth that we get from that passage. But the practical application, like with these guys who have gone through addiction, their lives have been shattered. They thought they could never be restored back to life. They could never be married again and to the, uh, you know, because of their problems they had or they, they could never be back on track again in their personal lives. They've just made a ruin of their lives. And they see a verse like this. God says, I'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. That's Joel 2.25. I'll make the glory of this latter house to be greater than the former. Isaiah 61 says, I'll give you beauty for ashes. That's a wonderful thing about God is that he is a restoring, forgiving God and he can bring people back from uh, the, the very nadir of uh, problems and restore them wonderfully and bring them back to a place where they are joyful and rejoicing in the Lord. And that's a wonderful truth. And this is a wonderful promise there. So if you're here this evening and you've gone through some problems in life and you're, you feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not plan B anymore, or even C. I'm plan Z with God. You know, I've messed up and failed so much in my life. I can tell you on the authority of God's word, he is in the restoring business. He took Mary Magdalene, who was possessed with seven demons. He took Zacchaeus, who was chief among uh, the tax collectors, and he was rich, which means he was really bad. And a whole bunch of other people, God restored them back into the place where they should have been. And God can do that for you, too, or anybody that you come in contact with. So... Underline this verse. Get it down there as a verse. I remember one time playing golf with a guy at a Bible conference. I've told this story many, many times. He had gotten away from the Lord. He and his wife were having some marital problems, all sorts of things like that. And uh, he was at a Bible conference. And I was talking to him. His name was Tom. And I said, uh, Tom, tell me your story. And I was just bending down, putting the ball on the tee, getting ready to hit the ball. I'm not an expert. Every time I tell a story, I always have somebody come up and says, hey, you free for golf tomorrow? That's how I always get asked that question. But, uh, you know, the, the fellow, he, as I put that ball down on the tee, I said, you know, Tom, isn't it wonderful that God gives these wonderful verses and promises in Scripture? And I started quoting those verses I just quoted a moment ago, Isaiah 61, you know, God will get beauty for ashes and all that. And there was silence all the time when I was talking about this. And so when I stood up to get ready to hit the ball, I looked over to him. He says, you know, you don't want to see a grown man cry. Do you? you know, he had tears welling up in his eyes, realized that he had made a mess of his life as a Christian. I'm not talking about before, as a Christian. And he just was soaking in this one of these wonderful promises that God can restore a person who's this way. And God can restore you. He can restore anybody. And uh, this is the reminder to the nation of Israel. Well, in context, God was saying to the children of Israel, you stay with it. Uh, the temple that they were building was a smaller foundation in Solomon's great temple. We studied Solomon a little bit this morning. Remember the Queen of Sheba coming and seeing this magnificent temple, the ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord, all these grand things that she would saw and witnessed. And Solomon's temple was magnificent. But the temple that they were building, which was much smaller. Keep your finger right here. Let me just take you to the book of Ezra. That's going to be hard to find too, right? Ezra, the book of Ezra. Just go back before the Psalms uh, to the book of Ezra, chapter 3. Let me just show you something here that uh, addresses the issue of generational perspective. Uh, 
Ezra chapter 3. So you go back before the book of Psalms, you'll come across Job before that, and then Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, those books. We're looking at Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chronicles the historical aspect of what's going on. And if you read with me verse 11, Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, the foundation is being laid down. It says, They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for His good, His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shadow with a great shout when they praise the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men like Haggai, who was either 75, 80 years old, who was there when they remember the temple of Solomon before it was destroyed, who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish or discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. That's the difference between the generations, isn't it? The older generations remembers, in this case, the beautiful, glorious temple. The newer generation, who didn't have that connection to the past, saw this smaller temple in comparison, and they rejoiced. The old men started crying. They're looking at it and saying, there's no way this compares. Oh, this is, a, this is a mess. God says, no, don't worry about it. I'll make the glory of this latter house to be greater than the former. He's got purposes in mind. Who cares about the size? It matters if the Lord is present. If he's there in our own personal ministry, in the life of the congregation, the past is past. Deal with the present. And as long as the Lord is there, as he said to the nation of Israel, I'll make the glory of that latter house to be greater than former. There's a future here. And the whole meaning of the uh, prophecies in Zechariah, those eight that he received in a single night, was to encourage the people to say, you stay at the work. Stay with it. Stay with it. Stay with the work. Because this has tremendous ramifications for the future. And that's what God says to me. He says, I'm going to shake the nations in the future. And the desire of the nations, whether it's a reference to the Messiah or the wealth of the kings of the nations as they come up to Jerusalem to acknowledge the Messiah, whether it's that or that, I will shake the nations and everybody will come and acknowledge this place. So you are working for a purpose. So whether you're involved in Sunday school or you're involved in youth group or you're involved in the oversight or whatever ministry you have in this place right here on this road in this town, there is a purpose that has far-reaching ramifications to the glory of God. He'll make the glory of the latter house to be greater than the former. It's not the, it's not the place, it's the person. And what God is saying here in this place, meaning with his presence, this place, I'll give you peace. So he talks about his presence and the promises that he gives. And then he gives shows about the peace that will come, this program in, involved. So just to conclude it here in verse 10... We have a third message. And I know my time is running out, but we'll just go through this briefly. In verse 10, we have the third message. On the 24th day, this is now two months later than the message just given, two months later. The ninth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. There it is, the word of the Lord, third message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests concerning the law, saying the people are asked to ask the priests. That's an ironic thing. Priests should be ahead of things. 
But here they are told to ask the priests. And a very intriguing statement. Verse 12. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, with the edge he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priest properly answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And the priest properly answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people prior to this point is the implication. So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord of hosts. And so is everyone, uh, every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now carefully or diligently consider from this day forward. He says, put it on your calendar. Make a note. Stop what you're doing and take some inventory here is what the charge is or the, the, the request. From before the stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, that's a measurement for grain, there were but 10. They came wanting 20, but all they had was 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. They were expecting, their expectations were a lot higher than what was actually produced. God says in verse 17, I struck you with the blight and the mildew and the hail and the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. That's how God gets attention. Even This is Old Testament, but this is still applies in a practical way for us. God gets our attention in some special ways. We may be thinking we're walking with the Lord well and everything's going fine, but really we can be deceiving ourselves. So God gets our attention through circumstances. He still does do that today, and that's what he did then. He says in verse 18, consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day, he says, put it on your calendar, go to your calendar, mark it down, the 24th day of the month, ninth month from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it the fifth time, that word is used. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. Isn't that a great verse? The word of God comes down and says, from this day, I will bless you. He says, in the past, you weren't walking close to me. He's really talking about sanctification and defilement. And the best analogy I can give is this. If I came in today coughing and wheezing and my nose is stuffy, and you can tell I have a cold, I can guarantee you'll stay away from me, right? Keep your distance. I'll give you one of these instead of a handshake, right? Preacher's job, hazardous condition is wintertime up in the north shaking hands with people. You shake hands with the 50 or 60 people. You don't know who is sick out there, right? You can transfer defilement quickly, and that's, where the, that's the purpose of this analogy. He says, you know, you were, if you're not walking in a clean way, it's easy to transmit that unholiness in a life of another person too by just contact. Just think if I had a cold. I can give you a cold by breathing on you. But I can't make you healthy by breathing on you. If I'm healthy, I can't make you healthy if you're sick. Right? And so that's the meaning of these analogies here. It says, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? Yes. You can transmit uncleanness, but you can't transmit holiness. And so God is saying to his people, he says, the reason why you're not moving ahead as you should be in your spiritual life is because there are some things that are not right. But you straighten out certain things and deal and judge those things in your life, and you'll see a difference in your spiritual walk. And that happens even today. 
He who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger, says in Job 17. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Not lifted up his soul in the vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing of the Lord. Now that has a, an application to Christ. But it has a very practical application to you and to me. Finally, just to wrap up, the last message here, the fourth message is found in chapter 2 and verse 20. It goes to 23, just these four verses. Again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, same day. This message came on the same day as the previous message. And it is given to Zerubbabel alone. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms, the end of the Gentile, the times of the Gentiles. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. Horses and their riders shall come down, every one of you, by the sword of his brother. In that day, meaning in the future, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, says the Lord, and I'll make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. That's the finish of the prophecy of Haggai. What is God saying here to Zerubbabel? It's coming from Haggai. I think it's this, is that he is promising this man, Zerubbabel, that he would be blessed for the work that he's involved in. Don't forget, he's the political leader. He's a spiritual leader, too, in some ways. But uh, Joshua is that. Haggai is the spokesman. But God is saying to Zerubbabel, I'm going to bless you for the work that you do. And I won't forget what you do. Now, the scriptures in the New Testament talk about five different crowns for the believer. The incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and a further crown that I'll think of when I get off the platform. Five of those crowns, but all practical uh, incentives for the believer to keep at it. Looking for the Lord's return, helping people to become fruitful, that's the crown of glory crown of rejoicing, you know, to lead others to Christ, the crown of righteousness for looking the Lord's return, the imperishable crown, crown incorruptible, 1 Corinthians 9. We're called to serve the Lord. We understand the reward for service. God has given clear reward for service. It's worth serving the Lord. There's a reward in this life, but there's a reward in time to come. And God is reminding us through the example here given to Zerubbabel that you stay with it in your work. And I won't forget you. In a future day, I'll break and destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms, verse 22. And in that day, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, says, Lord, I will make you a signet ring. Well, will Zerubbabel be alive in that day? You know, some could look at it and say, well, that would be, it had to be a prophecy in his own lifetime. It seems like here it's a picture of Christ. Zerubbabel is a picture of Christ. Uh, in his ministry. There's a number of different verses we could relate to that, but it, uh, the point is that God is going to reward Zerubbabel for the work that he was doing. God will reward you for the work that you do, whatever it is, man or woman, young person, older person, whatever ministry the Lord has given to you. There's spheres of ministry in the local assembly, but whatever ministry God has called you to, God will reward. And there's a future ramification of blessing in it. And that's what God is reminding us here through these messages given to the nation of Israel. First, he had to reprimand them for their lethargy, for their apathy, for their laziness, if you will, and say there's some problems here. You got your misplaced priorities. 
But once he stirs them up and they obey the voice of the Lord, then the work goes forward. And God continues to say, I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. I'll make the efforts that you do to be acknowledged by me and be blessed. And this has future ramifications to it and future blessing for other generations. And that's what God has called us to as well. And so it's a short book. Haggai, just two chapters. There's only one book that's shorter. That's Obadiah in the book of the uh, Old Testament. But a powerful book. And as we look at these four messages, the alternating rebuke and encouragement, rebuke and encouragement, we see the love and grace of God and the righteousness of the Lord dealing with us in our walk with him. And so we trust that these uh, words will be a help and a blessing to each one of us as we walk and serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. It is so apropos, so appropriate for many of us, Lord, in our lives. We realize that uh, we can be guilty of putting other things before you. And so we pray, Father, that you would challenge us and remind us and call to mind those things in our lives that uh, may not be pleasing to you and that we might put first things first. Father, as your word tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so, Father, help us to be reminded of those things. We pray that your spirit would call to mind and bring to remembrance those things that you've taught us. We thank you for your great work in our lives as great high priest, our advocate, our mediator, the shepherd, our bishop of our souls, the wonderful offices, Lord, that you occupy and that you exercise in our daily walk with you. So we pray, Father, for your help and your blessing. Thank you for the assembly here, Lord, for their desire for evangelism, desire for encouragement for those on the field. We pray that you bless and help and encourage and strengthen. Thank you again for your grace to us each day. And we give thanks in Christ's precious and holy name.